So kind of our goal this morning is we'll spend about 15, maybe 15 or 20 minutes in, in the Word, going through our text for the morning, and then maybe 15, 20 minutes uh, in a time of public uh, prayer for, for, for the Garrets. So, we'll, uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 51. Me and Psalm 51 this morning, and uh, I want to tell you a story about a man named Old Jack. Well, Old Jack is what his friends called him. I can't tell you what his non-friends called him. Um, he was your typical Midwesterner, uh, no-nonsense, straight shooter. Um, I mean, he was kind of a, he was one of those, he was a hard guy, but uh, a level level guy, had a hard childhood, hard adulthood, kind of, um, you know, so he kind of worked hard, party hard. Um, he married Jenny. Jenny was a sweet, delicate uh, little flower. They started dating in high school. When they started dating, her parents were mortified, but they tried not to let that be completely obvious. And uh, they were they were married. And then, in 12 years into the marriage, they had settled into kind of the cycle. Um, his kind of problem was anger and abusive language. And so they kind of go in this, this cycle of kind of escalating uh, anger and abusive language. And then she would need to do something kind of like dramatic to get him just to stop and uh, listen to her. And then, um, I mean, he, he was a good man trying to do the best he could. And then he would kind of resolve, okay, I'll be better. I'll stop. I can change. I really, um, you know, I won't, I won't do it. And then, and then so there'd be this kind of this cycle. And then eventually, you know, things would go back to the way they were. And then she'd get frustrated to be a new kind of dramatic thing. And one of the dramatic things is she made a drug him in to talk to the preacher. And uh, it kind of became obvious that, um, you know, I mean, he kind of, he wasn't owning up to the problem. The problem, you know, she's too sensitive. She doesn't know how good she's got it. I'm better than at least half the guys who work down at, at, uh, the mill. And even though I may be abusive with my words, I'm not like my father. I've never, hit her physically, which is, which is true. And she was a regular at church. And he would say he was a regular, which for me, you know, went, meant once every, um, month. And then kind of as things continued to devolve, eventually, uh, he came home from work one day and she was gone and, uh, he panicked and it was, you know, sometimes it takes really drastic things to get through some of our hard heads. And so he panicked and then called the, called the pastor and was like, what do I do? You have to help me, you know, call her, tell her I changed. I'll do whatever. Give me the list. I'll do, I'll kind of do it all. And so he said, all right, let's kind of come back, try and bring people together. And kind of the, the progression kept going. And eventually she, she left him. And one of the things that was so puzzling was, um, why did, why did the sorries never produce change? I mean, they were always sorries. I know, I know I shouldn't be that way. I'm sorry, but they would never really produce change. And that's the question. Uh, in one sense, Jack's story is not just their story. It's our story. All of us know and can feel what it's like to not want to be kind of this way. And we make resolutions and apologies and there's, there's sorries, but often they don't actually lead to real deep lasting change. Why not? Or maybe to put it positively, what if, what if I told you there was, a, there was a power and there was a process that you could walk through that would lead to real, deep, lasting change? We're in a series on the Lord's Prayer and kind of where we're looking at that because we want the Lord's Prayer as a church to kind of set both our commitments and our culture. So our commitments are God-centered commitments. We care about uh, honoring his name and worship, expanding his kingdom with our work and doing his will as his faithful servants. And then we want to have a culture that's marked by a culture that pleads with him. It says, give us this day our daily bread. We're generously dependent, dependent on him. And then we're, what we're going to look at this morning is the, the prayer of um, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses. So a culture of almost joyful repentance or regular repentance. And see, actually, true biblical repentance is one of the greatest powers on the planet. It has a power to heal any broken relationship. It has a power to redeem and restore any failure. There's nothing quite like true biblical repentance, but what we want to know is right, what makes it 
real? How do you experience the real power? Because I think we would say like Jack, we've all experienced times where we've tried to say we're sorry, but it hasn't really changed us. So the question is, how can we work repentance down into our heart in such a way that we experience its real power? And so two things I want us to look at um, this morning as we look at both the experience of real repentance and the expression of real repentance, if we're really going to experience its power. So our kind of key verse is from Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, but then we're going to look at the Psalms, because for these three sections of give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and then lead us not in temptation, we're going to look at different Psalms, because the two gifts that the Bible has for you to help you learn how to pray are the Lord's Prayer, which gives you a framework, and then the Psalms, which in essence puts clothes on that frame. And so there's a psalm for every season. There's a psalm for every situation. And so we're going to look at these different psalms. And Psalm 51 is probably, probably the second most famous psalm. Psalm 23 might be the most famous. This is the second. The story that gave rise to it is a famous story. This is a psalm that David writes after uh, he's confronted with his um, sins with Bathsheba and then Uriah. So David has become the king of Israel, and um, he uh, desires another man's wife, commits adultery. Uh, it's a patriarchal society, so she kind of has no say in the matter. Um, takes her, and then he... Um, he orchestrates things, so uh, Uriah is then killed, and then has Joab, the leader of his army, kind of construct things so it kind of gets swept away. Uh, she's she, she, he finds out she's pregnant, so she's trying to clean up uh, the mess. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. Uh, this is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and, and uh, tells him the story of this man. And so the king's the judge. So he comes with a, an account, a story, and uh, he says there's this man who had a thousand, a thousand sheep, and uh, his neighbor only had one precious sheep that he loved, and he, uh, the, the, the sheep slept in their home, and they treasured that sheep. And then uh, a visitor came to the man with the thousand, and he didn't want to sacrifice one of his own sheep, so he went and he stole his neighbor's sheep and killed it so he could give it to uh, his visitor. And David got so angry because it was his job to administer justice, and uh, David said, who did that? He will die. And then Nathan, and probably the most poignant sermon application ever said you are the man and then at that moment David was exposed he was exposed as a as a fraud he was exposed as a conniving adulterer who committed murder and then his life starts to fall apart and then what we actually see in Psalm 51 is uh, is him seeking after repentance and what we see is this remarkable Lesson on how we actually, there is a way, there is a process, there is a power that actually no matter what we've done, no matter what degree our life is falling apart, it can be made whole and restored again. So as we kind of move through this, kind of some basic structure, this is um, just beautiful on so many levels and poignant and powerful, and we'll probably just really dip our toe in um, this morning. Uh, but some of the, just kind of the pieces of the structure, you know, kind of one through six is going to set up the individual experience. Seven through 15 is going to bring you into the evidence of that. And then 16 through 19, you're going to see how it shaped the, the community. So let, let's hear it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So a couple things I want us to see this morning. One, the experience of real repentance and then the expression. If you're going to experience his power... And if there's going to be a power that can really energize your sorry so you really change, the first thing you got to see is you have to face who you really are. Notice how David, the way in which he owns his own sin. Look in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this, kind of don't be confused about this. He's not saying that there was some like scandalous thing with his mother and he came into the world that way. Um, I remember reading this in our church in Kentucky and sweet uh, Anita Rowlett, who was a sweet grandmother, just shook her head and said, it's always mama's fault somehow. <laughs> that's not quite what David's getting at. The idea, and this is the doctrine of, and that's what we call original sin, or the doctrine of total depravity. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but the idea is that from birth, there actually is the seed for every conceivable, conceivable sin already in us. We've been bent from birth in such a way where we um, desire to, uh, there's a self-will that is in us that the seeds for every sin are already there. But then if it gets watered with the right conditions, um, that the, the, all those sins uh, will grow. And that's what David is actually seeing. See, maybe it's for the first time that he recognized that this, he, he's had this uh, terrible atrocity that he's actually done, thrust in his face, and he can't minimize it or blame shift or excuse it. See, real repentance happens when the excuses, or real repentance begins when the excuses stop. Real repentance will begin when the excuses stop. And what he's actually seeing is all of these things were seeds. So it didn't just kind of come out of nowhere. They were seeds that were growing. A couple of illustrations to illustrate it. One from church history, one from Batman's birthday yesterday, and one from the BBC. Um, one of the most famous books in church history is Augustine's Confessions. And if you read that, um, often you can read it like in, you know, literature 101 or something. And often like um, secular professors might have a hard time kind of wrestling with what Augustine doing. I had a professor who would say, uh, Augustine, church history, uh, famous church father, uh, fourth century. Because um, you know, there's this long drawn out scene in essence chapter two where he talks about when he was 16 years old and him and his friends, they snuck into a pear orchard and then they, they destroyed these pears and then they kind of ran away and you just kind of read it on the surface and you're like, what's going on? It's just like, what's the big deal? It's just pears. But what Augustine wants you to see and feel is actually that illustrated for him because he said, like, why did we do it? I don't even like pears. So it's not like I was like hungry and needed them. We simply did it because we were told not to. And he says, what I realize now looking back is there was this, there was a seed in my soul that would, would only do that just because someone told me I can't. And I was bent, I was warped. And I saw this and yesterday was Batman's birthday. It's 80th birthday and we have a three-year-old who he, so we have a series of Batman pajamas that he will wear every single day of his life. Like we don't think like why waste Halloween costumes on one day? We wear them every day and then some of them like come to his knees and they're supposed to go to his feet because he's gonna wear, he wears them almost every, you can see four, five, six days in a row. And so yesterday was Batman's birthday or this past week and we were gonna go to Barnes and Noble as they were celebrating and by celebrating I mean they're gonna set out things you could buy. And... Uh, <laughs> 
we were gonna go to Batman's birthday. And so I start laying out his clothes in the morning. I'm like, this is his one day where he can, like, he wears Batman's costume to Walmart and Costco and we sort of kind of feel silly, but you know, it's not a battle we're gonna fight. But here's the day he can wear it out proudly. And I lay it out there and he wakes up and looks at it. And do you know what, he, the, the one day of his life he doesn't want to wear? The Batman costume. He wants to wear Spider-Man. And I'm sitting there thinking, we have this 12-minute argument. It's the clash of the titans, the three-year-old and the not three-year-old. And, and I'm like, how every day of your life you have wanted to wear this, and the one day it's okay and I'm telling you to wear it, you don't want to. You want to be Spider-Man. And the reason is because there's a bent, there's a disposition in his little bitty heart that's twisted in such a way where I will do whatever or I'm not going to do it just because you're telling me to. And that's exactly what David is coming to realize, like this has been deep in me. This didn't just pop up out of nowhere. And I wonder if he started running through his all mind and say, all right, where did that cruelty come from? Where did that grasping capacity that says I'm going to see something I want and I'm going to take it no matter what it costs anyone else? Like, I wonder if he wondered, did it start? Like, when I was a kid, and I would snatch and say, mine. Like, did it begin when we were 16-year-old kids, and we were making fun of the, the kids who couldn't uh, keep up or sling the sling like we could? Is that where the capacity for cruelty started? Or when did the lust go unchecked? This wasn't the first time he'd seen Bathsheba. This is a small town. The city of Jerusalem is smaller than the neighborhood of Loria Park at this time. It's got walls, he's in the highest place. This is not the first time he had seen her. When and how had he looked at her before? See, it didn't just start when it happened. And the reason why that's so important for us is we can't be in denial of our own capacity for cruelty. That's why Jesus says, don't that, like, if, if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery because that's the seed. Uh, if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder because that's the seed. The only question is, will the seed get watered and have proper conditions to really grow to be full fruit? And David, he never is going to change until he fully owns it. He has to own it. Did you hear and feel in the first couple of verses just all the me? Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my sins. Cleanse me, my. He's, he's got to own it. Real repentance can't begin until the blame shifting ends. And then notice he, in verse 1, you can see he recognized his three, his three problems. Uh, they're legal, moral, and internal. One is, is legal. I need you to blot out my record. I have a, there, there's a legal case against me, and only the judge, only the king can just expunge the record. But then there's also moral. It says, I'm dirty. I've been stained. But then notice the internal. My transgression is ever before me can't shake it. It's always there. I always see it. There's internal, legal, moral. And where is he going to go? And I think the next thing he's got to see, real repentance, he can't experience real repentance until he not only sees who he really is, but see who he's really hurt. There's this remarkable line in verse 4. What's happening there against you and you only have I sinned? I mean, how could David say that? I mean, we could come up with a pretty impressive list of maybe 297 people that are personally violated from this sin. I mean, how can he say against you and you only have I sinned? And I think we really won't feel the full force of our sin until we realize just how deep it goes in us and how it high it goes as an offense. It's against God and God alone. Life-changing repentance will happen when we see who we've really hurt and how deep. What ways has he sinned against God and God alone? Well, it's God that set the moral standards that David violated. Standard of truth, purity, murder. It's God where he says, you have despised my word. And then it's also God's image in the people that he's violated. So think about it, it's God's image. You know, Bathsheba is an image bearer not an object for him to use. Uriah is God's image bearer, not an obstacle for him to eliminate. Joab is an image bearer, not a tool to accomplish his will. 
And then you think about the people, the image bearers of the people. Now from their leader, the supposedly pious king who sits on the throne, now this, the, this poisonous gas of cynicism is going to seep into the community. In one sense, all the prayers of the Lord's Prayer so far, he's shattered. It's, it's not the Lord's name that he's honored. It's not the Lord's kingdom that he sought to expand. It's not his will that he's done. The Lord's purposes are disrupted. He sinned against the Lord. And deep change will never really happen until you see just how deep that sin is. So like for Jack, he's got to actually see that his destructive and abusive words uh, aren't, they're not just wounding his wife. They're doing that, but in wounding her, they're wounding the one who gave her to him. He's got to see that actually this wife is the Lord's gift and it's his responsibility to nourish and cherish her. And as long as he doesn't do that, he's violating the one who gave her to him. And it's until that lands on them that he really won't be able to change. Real um, sin is not just a violation of God's law, it's a violation of God's love. I mean, I could wonder, like, you can imagine, like, the scene if God could come out, sound, and, like, sit down with David and just look at him like, like almost the conversation you'd want to have with your three-year-old. Like, what were you doing? Like, what were you thinking? Like, who was it that called you out of the, shepherd fe- the field when you were a shepherd and anointed you to be king? Who was it that empowered you to defeat Goliath and triumph over your enemies? Who was it that gave you success in the military early? Who was it that sustained you when you were on the run for Saul? Who was it that established you in this throne? Who was it? Why? What are you doing? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. It's all a gift. And so you're violating not just her, you're violating the one who's given the gift to you. And it's not until David feels that, that he'll be able to experience the power of repentance. So now look the expression of it. How does he have to express this? First, notice what he says. There has to be a full, clean confession. He's got to own it. No more excuse making, no more blame shifting. You can feel that in verse 4. In verse 5, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you will be justified in your works and blameless in your judgment. Whatever comes, you are justified in it. He doesn't minimize it, doesn't rationalize it. It's not, well, she's so sensitive. I mean, think about that, all this. You know, it's not, you don't know what I've experienced. No minimization, no rationalization. And that's the same for us. Like, for Jack, he can never find power over these things until he stops minimizing and stops rationalizing. You know, in one sense, remorse can be the spark that sets repentance in motion, but it can't be the fuel that sustains it. Because what often happens is we're not, often what happens is we don't, we're not repenting, we're just complaining. So I can't believe she left me. I can't believe she took the children. Um, I can't think about all the ways this now is going to affect me. What am I going to say to the boys at the bar? What am I going to, who's going to take, who's going to pick up the kids when I can't get them to football practice? Who all the way, and so, what, are you repenting or just complaining? There's a difference. And no minimizing, no rationalizing. And you begin to see that the occasion's not the cause, but you're the cause. So he owns it, but then notice what he seeks. Because this is, he doesn't just seek the end of the consequences. He seeks to be clean, he seeks the Lord's spirit, and he seeks a real, lasting, deep joy. Notice how often that clean language comes in. He seeks to be clean in verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit. Clean me. Notice that word, he cries out, create, create. That Hebrew word, bara, is only used for God. Only God can do this kind of creation. We can make other things, like the Greek word poieto. We can make poems, we can make poems, we can make beautiful things, but we can't create this kind of thing. Only God can create this. The creator must be called in. And then notice the cry for the spirit, with God, the, the dynamic of spirit. Look at verse 11. I really think this is the beating heart of real repentance. The beating heart, if you're going to experience the real power of repentance, is verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
I mean, that's the cry. Notice what David doesn't ask to be taken away. He doesn't say, please don't take the crown. Please don't take the kingdom. Please don't take the throne. Please don't take the army. Please don't take the surplus, the, the, the storehouse. Please don't take the girl. Please don't take the child. So please don't take your spirit. And when that becomes the beating heart, that, be, that drives repentance where uh, kind of the, the messianic mathematics is if you have everything minus God's spirit, you have nothing. But if you have nothing plus God's spirit, you have everything. And as, until we feel that, know that, repentance can't be fueled. And so David said, please don't take your presence. The presence of the Holy Spirit is everything. You can take everything else, crown, throne, army, treasury, girl, take it all, but don't take that. And then notice what he asked for, his own spirit. Renew me, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me a spirit that's right or steadfast. You know, sin has made everything unstable. So make me steadfast. Make me new. You know, I love that line, wash me in verse seven, I'll be whiter than snow. The best nature can do is snow white, but you can do one better. I'll be purified and whiter than snow. And in verse 12, make, put in me a willing spirit. Because the primary way that God changes you is by gives you a new, new desires, new heart, new spirit, a spirit that's actually willing, willing, able, and eager to do what you're calling and asking. He changes you with a new enthusiasm, a wholehearted love. And the notice this, the, what the results is this kind of sober joy. I don't like the word sober, but I couldn't think of a better one. Where there's, there's this joy that's, it's not a flippant Joy, it's a joy kind of on the other side of sorrow and suffering. Because he's not minimizing what he's done. He's, he's owning it. Notice what he says in verse 14. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness. There's blood guilt. I have blood on my hands. But even so, I'll be able to sing and rejoice. It's a joy. It's a deeper joy on the other side of sadness and sorrow and sin. You can see this in verse 14. Verse uh, 13, I will teach transgressors, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Um, you can see it's almost like in verse 12, 13, 14, the, the sting of the sin is now that the presence has been impeded. He can't speak freely. He can't sing freely. And he's asking for a heart that'll sing again and lips that can speak and teach. You know, it is amazing in verse 13 how God answered that prayer beyond David's wildest dreams. Because this is probably the central passage where we can go and learn what real repentance is like. And then he looks, notice how keyed, keyed in he is on the delight. For you will delight in verse 6. You delight in truth. You will not delight in these sacrifices, but you delight in verse 19. So he's thinking through sacrificial language and sometimes this can be hard for us to understand, like, what's he talking about? What do are, what are those things mean? And there's a movement in the sacrifices, and you think about the sacrifice of the Old Testament, Old Testament worship, how it gets uh, transformed in the new, kind of three categories that can be helpful. You have the atonement sacrifices, sacrifices for guilt, sin, these atonement ones. And the goal of the atonement is at one mint, relationships broken, you come back. And then you have another kind of bucket, which are, we call like the, the ascension offerings or the whole offerings or the burnt offerings and all those offerings that take you up into God's presence. And then you have the whole category of offerings that are the peace offerings, the fellowship offerings. Those are to celebrate in his presence. So the right sacrifices, he's talking about there's this kind of movement, a threefold movement. Well, first there's sacrifice of atonement that, um, that clean us so we can come into his presence. Second is sacrifices of ascension that take us up into his presence. And then the third is the sacrifice of fellowship where we delight in his presence. And it's the fellowship is the point. That's the point, to dwell in his presence. So as we close, a couple of things to think about. Um, you know, I'm struck by how, to, how did David know? How could he have the confidence to know and ask these 
type things. In the story, David, you know, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Uh, the child becomes sick, is on his deathbed. David pleads and cries out to God to save the child. Uh, the child dies. And there's a sense in which David thinks, all right, the child, because the child has died, now the sins have been put away. And Nathan tells him, in essence, that's not quite right. Um, it's not your son that has to die to put these away. He doesn't know whose son's going to have to come to die, but he was almost right. And we can actually look back and we can feel, especially verse 7 to 12, and how could the Lord just put those things away? It wasn't that David's son had to die, but it was that God's son had to die. And you can see echoes, purge me with hyssop. You know where hyssop's a little branch first used when they would dip it into the blood of the lamb on the Passover and wipe it over the door frame? And then wash me. Or it's hide your face from my sins. See, he didn't know, but we know that uh, in essence the way that God can hide his face from our sins is because he hid his face from Christ on the cross. And why can David cry out, cast me not away from your presence? He is not cast out because Jesus was. And so we have resources. When David says, blot out my transgressions, Paul tells you the way he actually did that is he took the record of your wrongs and he nailed them to the cross. And that's why we sing the bliss. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And that's the power that really fuels lasting change. So it's only as we see who we really are, see who we've really offended, own it, and then turn to him that we can experience this type of repentance. And so one of the things we want for our church is to be a place, a culture, where that type of regular repentance permeates um, all we do. Now let's take a few moments and let's transition. And what I want to do is spend some time uh, praying for Kathy and Eli and their family. Um, not quite sure the best way to do this because it's a little unusual for us, but I'm just going to lead us in kind of a guided time where we'll pray for Kathy, pray for Eli, pray for the girls, pray for um, the extended people. Um, who are caring for them, and then we'll just kind of have it opened up, and uh, if you want to pray for them, do so. Um, silence is good. Uh, if multiple people are praying out loud, you feel led to do that, please do, and then if you hear someone else, don't worry, God can hear it, so lift up multiple um, voices. If all you do is groan, that's good, because the Spirit intercedes for us with uh, groans that we can't even understand, so... Let's move into a time of praying for them. Actually, as we do, it's so good to have the Psalms to set these things up because in verse 1 and 2, there's three elements of who God is that gives comfort and stability and structure to David's praying. He cries out to a king, cries out for the mercy of a king, only the king can blot out his transgressions, but he cries out to the love of uh, the, the term your steadfast love is the, is the term for God's faithful covenant, loving faithfulness to us. That's the term of a lover, husband and wife. So he's a king and he's able. He's a lover who cares. And then the third term for your abundant mercy is a term, it's often used of a parent who it's, uh, in essence, it's his, his, it's similar to when we say, oh, my heart aches. That's the same phrase, the insides of abundant mercy. So we come to a king who is able. We come to a beloved who has pledged faithfulness to his people. And we come to a parent who is tender. And so, Lord, we lift up our sister Kathy right now. We ask that you would have mercy on her. We come to you as king who is able. We come to you as the faithful one who loves your people. And we come to you as a tender parent who moves when your children cry out to them. So we ask you that you would heal her body. We ask that you would stop her internal bleeding. We ask that you would bring her back 
to full health. for Eli. You are the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. You are our ever-present help in our time of need. And we ask that you would look on him with the eyes of your mercy. Please comfort him with a sense of your goodness. Please Protect him from all of the assaults of the enemy, temptations to fear, temptations to doubt, to worry, to second guess, to accuse. Please protect his mind with your strong peace and give him the patience. That he needs to bear up under this and be able to suffer long. you are the good shepherd who gathers the lambs guard them from fear strengthen them comfort them whenever they're sad Whenever they fall, raise them up. And in their heart, may your peace, which passes all understanding, be ever present. for the other expecting mothers in our church for Kate and Emily and Crystal and Lindsay and Katie and Stephanie and anybody I've forgotten we give you thanks for the blessing that you've bestowed on these families oh Lord Confirm in them their joy with a lively sense of your presence. Give them the calm strength. Give them patient wisdom. Lord, we pray for the children you are knitting together in their wombs. We pray that they'll become oaks of righteousness. We love your word all of their days they love what's true what's noble what's just what's pure what's lovely what's excellent that with their life they'll be devoted to those things we pray that they would love you with all their mind their heart their soul and their strength pray for those who will be attending to Kathy. I thank you that we are in a place with people with such sophistication and skill who can act quickly 
and skillfully. So I pray for the doctors and I pray for everyone in our church who's dedicated their life to serving others. Christ, you did not come to be served, but to serve. And so I thank you for all those, whether they know it or not, are following in your footsteps. Pray that you would give them the wisdom they need, because we know how unclear these things can be. We pray that you would give them the patience they need, the courage they need. Give them the compassion they need. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them when they're weak, raise them up when they fall, help them to comfort the suffering. It's all these things we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. I'm so thankful that every week I have the privilege to stand and say that as we come to the Lord's table, this table was given. um, This is the token of our confidence and our hope. This table that we celebrate and we come to is that his, the promise is his body was broken so that ours could be put back together again. And I'm so thankful for the truth that gave rise to like the song we sung earlier, that he is worthy. So we saw in Revelation 21, where Jesus, the risen Christ is on his throne and he says, behold, I am making all things new. And the hope of the communion table is that he has promised to heal her body. He will do it now, or he will do it when she stands before him complete. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope because of the promise that we celebrate. He was broken so that we could be put back together again. Here at Trinity, we practice the intention method, which just means you come, come and you take the wafer and you dip, and it's your weekly reminder of his triumph over sin, death, and hell. And we have four stations. The one in the back will be gluten-free. If you have a gluten allergy, you can go there. And once our servers are in place, you come.
When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand
Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior. Help us now to live in all of these things. May they be ours all of our days. Amen.